this is the latest stage in the ongoing efforts to bring uh, buy now, pay later arrangements that are interest free, last less than 12 months and are repaid in fewer than 12 instalments inside the regulatory perimeter. Hi and welcome to Grant Thorne's Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast. My name is David Moy and I'm joined as ever by my colleague Ben Farmer. Say hi Ben. Hi Ben. Um, and this is our monthly ramble through the emerging news and events in the world of financial services regulation. Um, and uh, there's been quite a lot of this month, actually, Ben, although you've missed most of it because you went on holiday. I, I have. I spent a week and a half switched off from all Western media, which was semi-voluntary. Um, Where did you go, then? Uh, I've been in Shanghai watching one of my very best and closest friends get married, which was very excellent. And experiencing a whole nother economic system, which was interesting. Good good preparation, I'd imagine, for talking about financial services regulation, perhaps. That was the balloon ride back then. The, <laughs> the balloon ride back was cold. And yes. it was a very long sleep uh, in a not very comfortable airport because it broke, for which we may <laughs> or may not blame the Americans. No, at least you didn't get shot down. I think uh, I think I'd consider that a win. So uh, we will take a look, as usual, at what we think some of the bigger news is this month, and then we'll then we'll do a bit of a, a news roundup. So uh, make sure we, uh, we we tick through some of the, uh, I guess, less significant items. Um, top of the top of my list, Ben, is uh, the FCA has started to provide some feedback on consumer duty implementation. Has it not? It's uh, it's uh, it's put up a a website with a multi-firm thematic review uh, uh, and it's also produced uh, CEO letters for each sector. So quite a lot of material actually going out it, on, on the consumer duty yes. implementation. What, what are they saying? So let's take that multi-firm review first. So obviously firms were required to have a board level implementation plan for the consumer duty in place and approved by the end of October. And the move music from the FCA was very clear that they were going to be requesting some of these and looking at them and commenting on them. And sure enough, they have done this. So the review they've done to date is mainly based on the larger fixed portfolio firms. And the FCA has published a web page with some feedback there. Uh, there's some good headlines. They said many of the plans we reviewed showed that firms have understood and embraced the shift to focus on consumer outcomes, established extensive programmes of work to embed the duty, and are engaging with the substantive requirements. Um, that being said, as always with the FCA, there are also improvement areas. I think there's three main focus areas they flagged. So the first is effective prioritization. So this is basically focusing on reducing the risk of poor customer outcomes and making sure that firms are addressing the biggest gaps first, rather than just looking for the quick wins and ticking all of them off and then leaving all of the material work to do at the end of the project. So. A bit of a concern, I think, from the SEA that some firms are not quite prioritising the right yes. things to start kick, with. Kick the difficult things down the road. Yes. OK. Exactly. Um, the second area is on embedding the substantive requirements. So this basically is focused around making sure that implementation plans that firms have in place are not too high level. I think the SEA is trying to strike a balance between accepting that it is still relatively early in this journey, so they will be a bit high level for now, but. I think some of the some of the plans they've seen are still more high level than they were hoping to see. And some of them basically still just have actions in them that, that say things like review all of our customer communications and see whether or not they support consumer understanding. I think the FCA understandably wants by this stage in the game first to be at a slightly more granular level of their planning than that. Um, and similarly, there's a concern that some firms might be placing too much faith in their existing 
systems and controls and processes and where firms are thinking, well, we've historically done this well, so we'll keep doing it well, so it'll be fine, that some firms have not necessarily subjected their existing measures to sufficient kind of scrutiny and testing. Um, and the final focus area was on the extent to which firms are working with other firms properly in terms of collaborating and sharing information up and down the distribution chain between manufacturers, distributors, wholesale, retail, etc. Um, there are some findings in a few other areas as well. There's findings on governance and oversight to do with things like having unclear leadership or responsibility, and that applies for some firms at an overall project level, which is probably quite concerning. Uh, and for other firms, just at an individual work stream level, which is still not great, but it's probably slightly less of a worry. Uh, timings for progress updates to boards, some firms being slow to appoint consumer duty champions, which is meant to be a board level. Yes. yes. Uh, I think the SEA has signaled they would ideally like that to be a non-exec director. Yeah, if there is one, um, for sure. But yeah, some firms either haven't done that yet or did that too late in the game or a few firms, the FCA has suggested they've appointed consumer duty champions who are too junior and therefore may not have sufficient kind of sway and influence within the organisation to actually drive change. Uh, concerns around deliverability, so whether plans are robust and far enough advanced, gap analyses still at early stage. Uh, lots more on third parties, which I think, David, you had a few thoughts on on that being a, a recurrent kind of yeah, focus there were, area here. Yeah, there were there were a couple of couple of things that sh struck me particularly uh, and, uh, and, and, and you know we've all seen in different clients sort of a, a variance on, on on the feedback the FCA have given um good and bad uh, but the couple of things that struck me one was <clears throat> the um uh, the, the the really the language they were using around firms not doing enough to plan for the uh the level of dialogue they expect to see up and down the distribution chain um and I think, um, you know, that, that that there's a degree of cooperation and coordination there that, that is not necessarily historically natural within financial services firms, particularly particularly if the if, if you may be a distributor but also a competitor in some respects. So there's a there's a there's a, there's, there's certainly a natural tension there, and the the history when it comes to you know, Mifid or other regimes has been that pretty limited sharing of information has been the, has been the normal resistance to it. Um, so I did when I saw that in the consumer duties, think that well, okay, that's going to be that's going to be hard to do. It's going to take a while for for the industry as a as a collective to to up its game on information sharing. Um, but the the kind of language the FCA are using are, are, is pretty aggressive in terms of we we actually expect you to be planning in detail for how you're going to do that. To be already talking to your distributors, for instance, in detail about how how and what information you're going to share. So. So, so for me, for me, it suggested that maybe the FCA is going to be less tolerant about a slow burn on, you know, supply chain information sharing than than I potentially thought. Um, I think the other thing, the other thing that struck me a bit was um, they felt that there were there was a a, a cultural aspect to consumer duty. Uh, okay, which I think is probably everyone will acknowledge this is a shift in culture, but but they were looking for these implementation plans to have, you know, clear actions regarding how culture staff culture employee culture the business culture would, would would be changed in practice what would you actually be doing to bring that about um and and they, they didn't see many firms embracing at that kind of level which is again i think it's certainly got an interesting insight to how the fca um see this see this change um but you mentioned there were there were also the dceo letters weren't there by sector 
So was there any more good stuff in there? So there's been, yeah, DSEO letters sent out to every sector, as far as I can tell. Um, for the most part, they basically just restate a lot of what was in that multi-firm review and just highlight some of the most relevant considerations in the FCA's view for each of those sectors. Um, one thing that does pop up in a few of them that's interesting is they do reiterate the fact that the consumer duty will capture small and medium enterprise commercial customers. Mm, yeah. So just highlighting to those firms who maybe have an exclusively commercial customer base, don't assume that the consumer duty won't apply to you. It may still yes. capture some or all of your customers. Yes, yeah, good point. Um, and then the other thing that was in the letters that wasn't in the multi-firm review was that they talk about the FCA sort of plan next steps and its supervisory oh, yeah. approach. Uh, so larger firms are being put on notice that they should expect to be regularly asked to give comprehensive updates to their supervisors uh, and to share things like internal governance, doc governance documents and uh, committee minutes, which the FCA says it will engage with and challenge. So for, for the largest firms, the FCA appears to be basically inviting itself onto their consumer duty steer committee, which <laughs> I'm sure firms will love. <laughs> Uh, the FCA says they will focus on the methodologies, progress and outputs of the firm's baselining and gap analysis against the duty outcomes. Uh, that's from the banking sector letter. Um, smaller firms are also, warned, are also warned that they should expect some engagement too, which will be a mixture of bilateral firm engagement, shallow dives, deep dives, firm visits and multi-firm work of kind of varying scale and formality. And, yeah. and on that supervisory note, I think, David, you're beginning to see the consumer duty already popping up in some supervisory engagements, oh, aren't you? For, for, for sure. So it's already <clears throat> popping up in, in firm visits, thematic uh, visits as, as, a, as a sort of background question. So, yeah, we, we are talking to firm X about the FCA is talking to firm X about a particular subject, but they will frame their questions explicitly around the consumer duty and and we are now also seeing in skilled person reviews. So obviously that those are reviews where the regulator, the FCA in this case, um, sets out the scope. Um, and th those scopes are now being written um, it, with an inclusion to say, consider this area of the, the business um, in the light of the forthcoming consumer duty requirements. So essentially use the standard of the consumer duty to assess what the firm is doing in that area. <clears throat> and I guess you know, given given deadlines, it's not it's not it's not wildly unreasonable. It's 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 only a few months away now, but but it but it's seen it's it's already inherent in in almost every supervisory interaction we're seeing skilled person work. Um, and um, and you, what you just mentioned, the FCA clearly stating there that they're going to they're going to be raising this at every opportunity with firms. So we are also hearing a few rumours that maybe the financial ombudsman is already beginning to try and apply certain elements of the consumer duty in some of its decisions, uh, which is interesting, largely because that was something the FCA specifically said throughout the consultations would not occur, although yeah. the ombudsman is also rightly independent from the FCA. So how the FCA guarantees that, I don't really know. No, I don't think they can. Um, but I mean, yeah, particularly if they if the ombudsman starts trying to retrospectively apply some of the price and value elements of the consumer duty, that could have some fairly big implementations. And I suspect there could be some not terribly happy bunnies in places like the PRA if that starts happening at, at scale. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, well, we've a long, long history of the of the of the, of the FOS ploughing its own furrow, shall we say? So that wouldn't be too surprising. Um, okay, so consumer duty. Let's move on. Uh, consumer duty uh, clearly, uh, FCA has, has signalled it is going to be uh, the um, primary 
supervisory interaction um, they have with firms for the foreseeable future. Uh, so we expect more on this. Um, other other big news, I, I suppose that one of the things that, that, that I've been spending a bit of time getting my head around is, is the uh, crypto asset consultation work the, uh, the HM Treasury has been doing. So this is, um, there's a call for evidence, a consultation on the future of financial services regime for crypto assets. Um, uh, and so it's, this is this is a sort of plan for a plan stuff. It's setting out a direction of travel. It, it's not prescribing what would be detailed rules. Um, and in this case, it's addressing uh, well crypto assets. So this is this is this is um, a crypto protected store of value that can be transferred or traded. So that would be bitcoins, other forms of stablecoin. It'd be your NFTs. I think you'll find probably some limited edition images of me on the internet you can buy. But those, those are the NFTs. Um, is and it or is it that you pay other people not to put on the internet? <laughs> okay, so sales have been relatively slow at this point, but but I'm optimistic. Um, so the I guess the, the headlines around the direction of travel is uh, are that the the, the the government is envisaging that they will regulate this um, this area in very similar conceptual terms to existing regulated activity. So they will change the regulated activities of order. Um, uh, in such a way that if you issue uh, a crypto asset, if you are custodian of a crypto asset, if you are providing payment services uh, in, through crypto assets, then you, those will become regulated activities. Um, the rules themselves would be designed in such a way that we would have very similar concepts to those we are uh, we know now. With, so um, you know, there would the, the, be safeguarding of assets, and there would be a variant of, of what would be the cash or client money rules that apply to that. Um, there'd be a concept of arranging deals, of lending, of making payments, all, all of our crypto assets. So so uh, uh, and, and subjecting that whole group of firms involved in that activity to prudential requirements, to operational resilience requirements, to consumer duty requirements. So so uh, we're basically seeing uh, the, the outline of what will be a, regu a regulatory approach to crypto assets, which seeks to, you know, Act in the same way, deliver the same outcomes. That's a that's a that's a key a key part of uh, the consultation. Actually, what they're trying to achieve, yeah, but but uh, act in the same way and achieve those same outcomes as the existing financial services regulation does. Um, interesting and a very interesting point I think is that it, as currently written, suggests that what well, doesn't suggest it, it states that if you are a foreign issuer or, or of a you of a crypto asset and your customer is in the UK, I say issuer or, or, or any of the, the activities we just described, if you're doing that activity outside the UK, but with a UK customer, then you will be in scope and you'll require authorization. There's, there's a caveat that says uh, we will potentially consider uh, the equivalent of, of um, uh, reverse solicitation style rules that exist say, for, for other investment products. So, you know, you, there may be mechanisms by which someone from the UK could could volunteer, you know, without being solicited or marketed to, could 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 uh, go and deal with these outside providers. But yeah, on the on the face of it, it's 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 creating an environment where um uh you know and doing undertaking any kind of crypto activity with the UK customer is going to be caught within the perimeter um of these new rules. Um so uh, quite a long way to go on that. That's that's a call for evidence. Uh there'll be a um a further consultations to follow. We're a long way from any kind of detailed rules on that, although ultimately those will need to be made by the, the FCA. 
uh, in, t in terms of developments in this area that are a bit uh, a bit more approximate in time, uh, the government also issued a policy statement on financial promotions in relation to crypto assets. Um, so this is uh, so essentially reversing uh, their position. Um, a couple of years ago, they took the decision to bring financial promotions in respect of um, crypto assets within the financial promotion order, which basically meant, as all financial promotion order products are required, they, they need to be signed off by an authorised firm which obviously excludes most crypto asset providers because uh, currently uh, they're, they're not they're not authorized in the, uh, authorized firms um and i think the original uh, expectation um policy statement describes uh, an expectation that there would be authorized firms that would continue to be willing to sign off on um crypto asset or financial promotions in a controlled way so they would still happen you would still have promotions in that area um what the policy statement says is basically uh, no, no firms were actually willing to sign off financial promotions. So essentially, the rule change it was an effective ban on promoting um, crypto assets. Uh, so basically, this policy statement is saying the FCA should make detailed rules that will allow um, crypto businesses, which are uh, regulated by the FCA for AML purposes, as, as they would be. So they're not they're not full part for FISMA firms, but they're registered rather than authorised with the FCA, those registered firms will be able to sign off their own promotions in relation to crypto assets. Um, uh, noting that, you know, this is temporary and in due course, uh, you know, the, the whole the whole sector will be pulled into uh, full authorisation and and uh, this kind of um, work around routes to getting financial promotions out will, will, will cease to exist. So, so there's a couple of things around crypto there. Um, did I say? I mean, the FCA have been taking some actions against crypto firms. They're not too pleased with it, haven't they? They have, yeah. So the uh, in February, the FCA put out a press release stating that in a joint operation with West Yorkshire Police, uh, they raided several sites in Leeds, which were suspected of operating illegal crypto ATMs. Uh, these being machines that allow customers to buy or convert funds into crypto assets. Um, those are considered a form of crypto asset exchange provider who, as you've alluded to, need to be registered with the FCA and comply with the money laundering regs. Uh, currently, however, no crypto ATM operators have FCA registration. So basically, if the FCA can find a crypto ATM in the UK, they know it's operating illegally at the moment. Um, to what extent this was a police-led operation or an FCA-led operation, I don't know whether this is a sign that there's going to be wider FCA action or whether this was sort of opportunist that it's something the police found yeah, yeah um, and they've also started taking some action against some crypto related fin proms uh so they provided their financial promotions update that in 2022 the fca as a whole banned 8500 promotions which is 14 times the level in 2021 did you say 14 times 14 yes uh, so that's that's a lot. They've also published over 1,800 scam alerts, uh, and there's been a particular focus on financial social media influencers, or what the FCA is now calling finfluencers, which is a horrible, sick in mouth word. Um, and what I thought was a sort of interesting parallel with the current direction around the online safety bill that was causing much debate a few uh, weeks ago is that the FCA says it's worked closely with several big tech companies to change their advertising policies to only allow financial promotions that have been approved by FCA authorised firms. Uh, which actually, coming back to what you were mentioning earlier, if no FCA authorised firms are willing to sign off on any crypto 
promotions, that's effectively a de facto ban on crypto yeah. promotions on those yeah. big tech platforms. Yeah. Uh, I don't know which big tech platforms that is, but certainly all the ones I'm using are still full of crypto promotions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I know you're a huge TikTok user, so yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, that's enough on crypto. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, we're just at the starting point, as we all know, of the, uh, the, the government's uh, uh, efforts to um, improve um, the regulation of crypto uh, more, more generally. So we'll uh, be seeing a lot more on that. Um, talking about an area we'll be seeing more of, uh, there was another government consultation, was there not, on buy now, pay later? Yes, there is. So this is the latest stage in the ongoing efforts to bring uh, buy now, pay later arrangements that are interest free, last less than 12 months and are repaid in fewer than 12 instalments inside the regulatory perimeter. So we now have some draft legislation out for consultation. Uh, that consultation is open until the 11th of April, if anyone listening is motivated to respond to it. Uh, so the regulation will be limited to agreements offered by third party lenders uh, in the interest of trying to remain proportional. Uh, buy now pay later agreements offered directly by the merchants themselves will not be captured within the regulatory perimeter. And for similar reasons, merchants who offer the newly regulated buy now pay later products, they won't be within the perimeter, so they won't be required to register as credit brokers and become authorised with okay. all of the implications that go with that. Uh, the exception to this is domestic premises suppliers, i.e. door-to-door sales. So anyone selling buy now pay later agreements inside a customer's home will have to be authorised for credit broking. Uh, that's due to the perceived increased risk of customer harm via pressure selling associated with those sales methods. And that sort of parallels many of the existing approaches and controls that are already in the rule book. Uh, unlike crypto, buy now, pay later is going to be within scope of the financial promotions order. Pre-contractual disclosures will obviously now be required, but the form of them will be slimmed down from what the Consumer Credit Act currently requires. Again, that's in the interests of proportionality. And finally, of course, bringing all of this within the regulated perimeter means that the financial ombudsman will now have jurisdiction over the newly regulated agreements which presumably means as of right now, they're already probably ranking decisions on unregulated agreements and probably applying the consumer duty to them as well. <laughs> yes, putting some themes together there. OK, OK, so so um, that's draft legislation. The FCA will ultimately be required to draft and consult on detailed rules. That's um, that, that's the direction of travel there. Fabulous, fabulous. OK, so it's a quite big well very big um you know areas of, of regulatory change there from consumer duty to, to crypto approach to buy now pay later these are all things that are changing understanding of um of, of what the regulatory perimeter is and and how uh, and what regulatory objectives are um i, I guess if, if i look if, if, we, if we turn sort of a quick news round up um there's a few things there which um are also quite forward looking uh one is, well, just a quick update, the, obviously the financial services and the markets bill continues to trundle through to, through its parliamentary process. I know the news um, in, in the last week or so has been that a Lord's Amendment to add an objective, statutory objective to uh, to facilitate financial inclusion, as uh, the HM Treasury has, has, has come out and said they will oppose that and it probably won't therefore uh, make it into the final bill. Um, 
the uh, but what, what will be in the final bill, of course, is is a new objective to facilitate the achievement of net zero. So, you know, the role of the FCA, the POA will be will include a specific objective to facilitate net zero, which which obviously opens up uh, you know, a range of, of potential areas where you know the regulators may seek to take action action in order to try and and um, achieve that objective. And we got a bit of a glimpse in discussion paper 23-1 um, from the FCA about what that might mean. So it's a discussion paper on um, finance for positive sustainable change. Um, it's a deep piece, so it's it's more of an ideas piece than anything else. And it tackles only really three areas in relation to firms. It looks at governance around sustain, managing sustainability. It looks at incentives, how staff are incentivized to, to to deliver on sustainability objectives. And it looks at um, training and competence. Actually, interestingly, which is you know uh, what what level of education should staff be getting uh, around sustainability, and also you know what what how might you define what an ESG professional is? Can you just sort of spray that on and 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 be an ESG expert overnight? Um, uh, I mean, it's a thematic DP, so it's, it's it's an ideas piece. It actually, uh, links to multiple other articles from academics and and other international bodies. It has ten separate articles in its own right back in, in, in on these these topics. But I think I think the key takeaway for me is that it's a direction of travel piece. So. It's talking about what good practice may be, but it's also asking the explicit question in, in classic kind of consultation fashion. Um, it, it, should we, the FCA, consider setting regulatory expectations in this area? So, so it's asking the question, should we make rules that relate to these areas, governance, incentives, training and competence? Uh, my strong suspicion is, particularly given the strategy objective, that the answer is going to come back. Yes. Uh, whatever the answers to the consultation are, I think the, the answer to the, the the answer will be yes. Yeah, the, the, the cynic in me assumes all the firms who respond to the consultation will say no, thank you, we don't need rules. <laughs> all of the wider stakeholders will say yes, please, let's have rules, and the FCA will say we're going to have some rules. Yes, yes, that's my I, expectation. I might be, I might be being massively overly cynical there, but no, no, no. That, that, I mean, well, I, I, I've said before, but I think the the inclusion of, uh, as an, a formal objective of facilitating net zero. Um, Pretty much guarantees that they have to have rules, more, a lot more rules than they currently have in some of these areas. Um, so there's DP 231. Uh, I won't go into it at length. Maybe we can do it a bit more next month. But DP 232 came out. So that's the FCA discussion paper about the UK regime for asset management. I think the only thing I'd say on that now is look at it as part of the um, Edinburgh reforms. It's, it's, it's essentially exploring ways in which the UK fund regime might diverge from particularly the USITS regime that, that we operate under currently and, and obviously the EU operates under. So a, no, a number of things it's exploring um, and uh, essentially would uh, diverge uh, our current position in a few areas from, from, from where Europe is. Um, so, But we'll, we'll probably touch on that in a bit more detail um, next month. Yeah. Um, do, you have, do you have a feel from that, David? It might be too early to say is that are we talking diverge in the sense of tinker around the edges and optimize or diverge in the sense of get a whole new regime from the ground up or, or I, is that basically the question they're consulting on my my guess is so i mean usits is uh, very formulaic um so he has things like you know, x percent specific concentration level uh, or limits when you five ten forty rule that the 10 percent of uh, only more than 10 percent of the funding in 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 unlisted 
equities. So, so it's, it's got it's got these quite formulaic um, um, limits, uh, which are you know meant to meant to ensure these funds are you know quote safe for retail investors, low risk. I mean, it, it, but the reality is, you know, investment strategies are such that those limits are not the only way of mitigating risk. So, so I, I suspect what we're probably looking at is a it is uh, um, a move towards uh, a more principles or conceptual base of so rather maybe some of those hard limits get removed and we have a much stronger focus on you know, sound risk management practices and disclosures and and those and those and those, those kind those kind of things um, um, so uh, yeah a, di a different a different regime to to use it's fundamentally different but it'll, only time will tell I mean I think the Go back to your your comment on the on the the uh, sustainable finance discussion paper. I think um, a lot of the industry on DP twenty three two for for asset management may well say uh, actually we're quite happy with these rules. We've been operating under them for you know twenty odd years in different guises, um, and uh, it, it's not necessarily anything we particularly want to change. Um, uh, I guess we should we'll move to a, a principle-based regime that is meant to inspire broadly the same behaviour that the formulaic rules were mandating. You, you've arguably used a lot of pen and ink to not actually change that much in the real world. That, that is that is also that is that is true. That is true. But anyway, we 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 we, we shall see. We can, we can probably touch on some of the more the detail there another day. Um, we uh, we had uh, consultation paper twenty three four, which. Uh, is value for money on DC to define contribution pension scheme. So this is not not your final salary defined benefit stuff. This is this is um, DC schemes. Have you have you had a chance to take a quick look at that, Ben? Yes, I have. So this is a joint consultation between the FCA, the the Department for Work and Pensions, and the Pensions Regulator. Uh, it sort of builds on the legacy requirement for DC schemes to have an independent governance committee and to produce an annual what was a value for members report is now going to become a value for money report uh, and it's all about tackling a perceived issue of limited transparency and low comparability between funds as the SCA said in their foreword to the consultation we know that most workplace savers don't engage with their pension and must trust the system to deliver value for them where a scheme is assessed as being poor value for money with objective assessments, we will expect a provider to take action so that a pension saver can never be in an underperforming scheme for long. So the messaging there seems to me to actually go even beyond just providing pension members with easy, comparable, transparent information so they can make their own decision to switch. Although that definitely is part of this, that seems to me to come with a subtext of and if as a firm, you know that you've got a pot of customers sat in an underperforming yeah. scheme. You should either drive scheme performance or look at transferring them out to something that performs better, which would then all build on a lot of the consumer support and price and value outcomes that are being woven in through the consumer duty, which yeah. indeed is mentioned extensively throughout this consultation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the key idea is there's a whole range of metrics being consulted on that basically all DC pension providers will have to publish in a standard format so that people can easily compare them. And they're on things like backwards looking returns, financial performance, some form of risk metric, uh, some form of forward looking metric, but that's clearly quite challenging to do. So that's very much an area in the consultation where the, the paper is seeking suggested views on how best to do that. 
costs and charges and quality of services. So trying to find ways to measure things like the effectiveness of customer communications. But yes, the, the overall focus very much on providing a way for people to put two different defined contribution pension schemes next to each other, work out which is performing best and therefore decide which one they should be in. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's price and value. Uh, you know, so within the consumer duty, the price and value uh, uh, rules are written in a way that you know, the firms in question should develop their own methodologies to assess you know, and, and you know, essentially, essentially leaving it up to firms to obviously the FCA are going to challenge about whether you come up with very good things, but but, he, but in the first instance, the firm will, firm will get to decide what it thinks uh, the right kind of measures are for, for price and value. Um, but we do have these other regimes and this is one and uh, to some degree, um, you know, assessment of value on funds or others where things are moving at a different pace, actually, and, and the and the um, uh, you know, the regulators are showing themselves to be not unwilling to dictate what price and value measures you should be using, actually. Um, uh, and I know that's, you know, that's one of the, 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 the open questions for the industry, isn't it? Does 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 the price and value objective you know, start as a self-assessment exercise and then over time become more directive, potentially, both in terms of both what you what you choose to measure and uh, and but but then also what you then do about said said measures so yeah it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's interesting to reflect on on how different bits of regulation are uh, approaching uh, yeah i think i think a lot of that comes into the competition angle doesn't it where it where it's price and value for a firm's internal assessment of just is this product still fit for purpose should we keep offering it i think yes SEA very happy for you to set your own methodology but there are certain areas where the fca clearly wants to encourage more shopping around which requires comparable data, which then requires a level of mandated performance, doesn't it, to make sure that you get the same metrics in the same format in the same place, so people can make informed yes. decisions. Although, I wish yes, like how effective making firms publish a load of benchmarks is. I mean, the the FCA and the insurance sector has been for a little while now collecting and publishing some value metrics, and I would hazard a pretty good guess that a lot more firms have used that to benchmark off each other than customers have used that to choose who they're going to insure with. Mm, uh, I could be wrong. I've got no access to any website data to back that up, but no. I, I can't think of many of my friends outside the industry if I said, oh, there's a big database over here you can go and look at to choose your car insurance, they'd just be like, no, I'll just buy the cheap one. I'm sure you, I'm sure you encourage them to, uh, to, 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 to do so. Um, uh, well, no, because I want them to remain my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. You, Keep your profession a secret. That's why. Yeah, that's, that's certainly <laughs> be my approach. Okay, um, we'll finish as we normally do, just uh, reflecting on on fines. Um, uh, you know, the juicy, scandalous part of part of the podcast. Um, been a bit quieter actually. Uh, I, I, the, the two I was going to mention were um, interesting, really. Uh, well, probably because they're, they're they're big, quite high profile, but also because they, what they say about um, in this case, in these two cases, they're both FCA fines. Um, what they say about the FCAs um thinking in relation to fine and penalizing firms versus versus uh you know ensuring customers don't uh suffer as a result so so the first is is, is amigo so that's that's uh, a, a consumer credit firm um and it's been fined well is not being fined. The fine I noticed uh, was that that it would be due for a seventy-three million pound fine for basically non-compliant affordability checks. So you know, 
fairly standard stuff, unfortunately, in terms of uh, issues that that sector has. Um, but the fine was not being enforced uh, because, uh, as you as people may also know, Amigo is under a court appointed process to pay a lot of redress, actually. And uh, uh, the, um, the the imposing the fine would would essentially, uh, per the FCA's assessment, um, mean that redress scheme fell over, or the firm fell over, the redress scheme wouldn't happen. So, so essentially the fine would not be enforced because it would diminish the ability to redress customers. And somewhat similar to that, it, although we haven't had a formal announcement, we've had a brief update on FCA's website, uh, Link Financial, which was the authorised fund manager for the Woodford funds, uh, and there's been a long, obviously a long-running investigation there, um, and um, there is uh, the expectation that Link will be fined and also be required to pay some form of redress to investors in Woodford. Um, Link, I think the time of the FCA announcement was because Link, which is owned by an Australian listed business, um, made a disclosure that they were setting aside 256 million pounds to cover the redress and and the fine um and the fca in their statement said that, that, that they won't be enforcing the um that settlement um uh and well they're essentially going to going to give link time to sell off assets um to um sell sell enough to, to sort of realize the money to be able to pay that so uh so i think it's another example along with amigo that where you know the the fca are um tailoring their penalties to try and maximise customer redress, which I think is is a good thing. Um, I think, yeah, the, the FCA has already come under a lot of criticism just for the length of time it's taken for anything tangible to happen with Woodford, hasn't it? If it was also then, oh, and none of the investors got their money back, but the FCA got a hundred million pound in fines. It's uh, that they're not headlines anyone wants to see. Either. They no, don't help no. anyone at all. No, no, but it does. It does also raise the raise 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 the uh, um, uh, obviously uh, corollary, which is that um, um, if you're a business in good financial standing, then you have to pay your fines promptly. Um, <laughs> if yeah, if you run the business so badly that you're you're about to fall over, then you can you can uh, you could probably uh, potentially avoid paying the fine at all. Um, certainly, if you've got customer customers that need to be redressed. Okay, well we'll we'll wrap up there. Uh, ben, thank you. Thank you to everyone that's joined us for, for this month's podcast. We'll be back in a month's time um, to give you our update on news and events from the world of financial services regulation. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.